And this is the, the classic presentation of those four vipalasa as, as principles. So this is the ultimate prescription from the Buddha for you know what we need to as a medicine. If we could really take that medicine, we'd be enlightened straight away. <laughs> So, you know, without training, if our minds are untrained, they are subject to those four vipalasa. And as I said before, literally vipalasa means vipariasa means turned upside down. And if you read the suttas, you can see often at the end of the suttas, after the Buddha gave a, a sermon, one of the people who listen, they say, oh, you have turned, you have turned that up, which was turned upside down, or you have lit a light. So that's often expressed also in the suttas. And there's different, you know, this uh, little list, I have it from the, it's the Anguttarinikaya 449, Anguttarinikaya is the graduated sayings, where there is the suttas are ordered in, in accordance to how many subjects are mentioned. And that's of course the fours, because it's four vipalasa. And it's different people translate the word vipalasa in, in different ways. Uh, when Bhikkhu Bodhi um, translates it as inversions, and then Joseph Goldstein translates it as hallucinations, and Bante Suchato translates it as distortions, and in the older translations it was translated uh, as perversions even. So that's the different ways how we can think about it, and because it lead, they lead to wrong view. And uh, without training, our minds are subject to those distortions. And inside meditation has the function to correct those four distortions. And we tend to believe you know, that our perceptions are true, but in regards to happiness, we perceive things wrongly, all the while thinking we're seeing them correctly. And that's really something important to take in, because the teaching of the Buddha isn't an, about anything else, but that there is suffering and there's a way out of suffering. And that's, I think, which is interesting for all of us. So the Buddha doesn't tell us the way things are, but he gives us different tools we can use to experience that for ourselves. So it's not a prescriptive teaching, but a descriptive teaching. Uh, the opposite, it's not a descriptive teaching, but a prescriptive teaching. He gives us a recipe and says, you know, if you do that, or a, or a prescription, if you follow this, you will know for yourself, like a doctor. If you take this medicine, you will get healthy. And so it, therefore it's really very important for us to 
put it into action, to put it into practice. Otherwise, we just have this piece of paper and it sounds intellectually interesting, but it won't have an effect. And so I want to go through a little bit through those four vipalasa now. And those four distortions, they are experienced on three different levels for us. The first level is the level of perception, which is the most shallow level. And I give examples for all of that later. The second level is the level of thinking or mind. And the third level is the, the deepest one, the most difficult to dislodge, is on the level of view. Sanya is perception, citta is mind, and ditti is view. And for example, uh, you might have all experienced that going for a walk in the forest and then you see a long, thin, darkish object on the forest floor and for a moment you think it's a snake and the whole body jolts or jumps. And then you look again, oh, it's just a branch, it's just a piece of wood. That's on the level of perception, so that's easily remedied. You know, you just look one more time and here it is, it's not a snake, okay, I can keep going. But then, you know, if you keep on thinking about it, and then every time you, you are on a in a forest walking, you think about, oh, you know, there could be a snake, and then you get really kind of stressed out, and your whole experience is influenced by the mind thinking about the possibility that there might be a snake, and that brings a certain amount of stress and suffering into the experience. So that's the distortion on the level of thinking, on the level of mind. And then, you know, if for some very unfortunate circumstances you develop a real phobia of snakes, for example, and then you, you don't want to go anymore for a walk in the forest, then it's so deeply lodged on the level of you that you cannot experience yourself without that it becomes a very strong view and whatever people tell you, you can't take it in because you're totally convinced that it's dangerous because there's every, there could everywhere be a snake around the corner. And that's very difficult to dislodge because, you know, information, even, you know, reading a scientific journal about snakes and hearing from other people and nothing helps because you can't anymore listen because you're so convinced you can't hear. And we can see that, you know, on the level of climate change, the same. There are some people, they are just absolutely convinced that it's not happening because of so much fear that they can't even, you know, open their minds to listen or to read some real, very clear information. There's no way, they're just absolutely convinced. And that's very, very difficult. That's that level of view. When it comes to that level, it's hard. You know, and those four distortions of perceptions, in principle, they are dislodged to this extent into our system. You know, experience ourselves as separate entities, for example, and not really seeing the impermanence and not really perceiving with our sense organs, we are unable to perceive that we are actually processes but not unchanging things. Only if we start to practice meditation and sensitize 
our system, can we start to make an inroad on this? So let me go through them. So the first one is seeing what is impermanent and Nietzsche as permanent Nietzsche. For example, this bell. I think our sense organs show us that this is a thing which isn't changing because we can't see the changingness of it. We can see it with flowers, but there's many, many objects we can't see it. And also we call all objects with, with a noun, and that also hides the process nature of it. This is just the way how our minds work. It's not that we are doing something wrong, but we have a limited equipment. As a human being, you know, we are born with those six senses, the mind being one of the six senses. The mind does thinking, the ears do hearing, the nose is smelling, and all of that, and the mind isn't special. The mind just throws out thoughts. And we have to learn to put that into perspective. It's a sense organ. It's one of the six sense organs. And it has a function, but it's not the boss. We have to you know, see deeper and deeper into how that actually works and be less impacted by the thoughts. But that's a, it's, a, it's a long road, but it can be done. And we have already the know-how, how to do it. We just need to put in the, the time. And for that, we need to really understand the, the dire need for it. And we're all working on it. I'm also working on it. I'm not enlightened. So that means you know, I haven't really understood it myself to the depths I need to understand. So, so the first one, seeing what is impermanent as permanent. And then the second one is, and that, you know, just want to say that, and seeing that which is impermanent as permanent drives it home, you know, how attachment is really extremely misguided and doesn't make any sense because it doesn't make any sense to attach to that which is impermanent. That can only result in dukkha or stressfulness. And then the second one is uh, seeing what is painful, dukkha as pleasant, sukha. So for example, in the world out there, the consumerist world calls renunciation suffering. And the Buddha calls renunciation freedom, or Vimuti, name of uh, Vimuti Pala, name of Diane. So the real freedom of suffering lies actually in renunciation, in not needing things to be necessarily the way we want them to be. So that's something, you know, we really need to put our minds towards in order to really decondition ourselves because we live in a culture which we have to go against the stream of that culture, which is a capitalist consumerist culture who, which wants to sell stuff all the time. So it needs to shout it out very loud so that we kind of are 
then all the senses are crowded out by that information because it's wrong. Or it's limited, it's, it's, it's right within its own philosophy, but that philosophy is downright dangerous really and does not work and cannot ever deliver what it promises because it is going against the laws of nature. It's do- it doesn't work. And then the third one is seeing what is without a self as a self, without a self anatta or emptiness, or as Thich Nhat Hanh so beautifully calls it, interbeing, interdependence, what we just saw very clearly in the elements meditation. And you know, and whatever you put out there in the environment, because we are not separate from it, it's going to come back in here. And it's going to make us sick. And it has already made many people sick. And not only sick of body, but also sick of heart and sick of mind on all levels. Because, as I said earlier today, you know, it's not a pollution problem only out there, but it's, it's really, it's an indicator how, how disconnected we are from our natural habitat, completely disconnected. Because we have put our attention, we have put our minds, our money, our everything in, into the wrong investment. And now we are all waking up to that. And We don't need to beat ourselves up for it because we did the best we could and we are just like one species in this evolutionary process and but as soon as we notice it's not working we we need to really stay with that recognition because it really isn't. And to just take our rightful place in that whole Adventure, you know, we, we are really, we are just one species of ape and we shouldn't forget that when it comes to the crunch, you know, we, that's what we are. And then the fourth one is seeing what is not beautiful asuba as beautiful suba, which means you often, you know, we just get stuck on the surface of, of appearances and we don't go underneath and then we can get carried away by fascination and desire and wanting and you know we can distract ourselves in that way and a very good uh, example would be you know to go under the surface of the skin and look inside the body and see what's happening in there it's very different than what we see on the surface and that's what the Buddha was teaching, not, not in order to create a horror or something like this, but in order to balance out our limited ways of seeing. To see the whole picture, you know, to see birth and death. And to see the beauty of a young person in the, you know, in the height of their beauty and then also to see, they will also get old. And if you cut them open, what's inside there? It's not very beautiful. It's not very attractive. And 
And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't rejoice in the beauty of what nature offers, but also to see it in perspective, to see the whole picture, to really balance it out. And I think that's what the Dhamma teaching is all about, you know, to see the whole picture from arising through existing to ending. To see the process nature of all of this. And this is, you know, those four vipalasa and the antidote, so to say, other other medicine really. And they are available, they are not expensive. You don't need to you know, they are not not to pay any money for it. Just uh, sharpen the mind and take the time. And then we can all participate in that medicine because it's it's free. And somehow, you know, what is free isn't very interesting because we are kind of conditioned to value those things which are expensive. So that's, this is why we need a lot of training. We need to really, we have very blunt knives and we can't, you know, it's very difficult to cut something tough with a blunt knife. So we have to really put in some time to sharpen this knife of the mind and then really use it to go into our experience and see what's really there, what's really happening and then adjusting and knowing you know we have already a body and a mind and a heart you know which are very vulnerable they are like very very perfect instruments to do this work. It's already all here, but we just need to reshuffle the picture because we got it a bit wrong, because we are very immature species. We are like, it's, you know, I've read it in several books, we are like about adolescence, you know, in our maturity, how we relate. Like adolescents, you know, who want to have all the rights, want to be out till three o'clock in the morning, but don't want to take out the garbage, don't want to help with washing up. This kind of a situation is very well illustrating, you know, how we behave within the bigger picture of how we live. And we need to grow up, really. And we can. And we have perfect uh, set of tools to do it. We just need to get really interested and fired up enough. And, and then, you know, change our priorities a bit. And according to the teachings, there's two kinds of supports for this process to happen. The internal support is wise attention, and the external support is, is good friends. To do it together with others, to really take it in, you know, it's not just like that one person has to shoulder all of this, it's impossible. But to do that together with others and to 
also know that we don't have necessarily the answers, but we can create spaces and situations <coughs> where we can meet together and where we can allow those answers to arise. And later on this afternoon we can also share about the certain um, groups and forums which already exist and we can tap into it. They exist here in Sacramento. And there will, is something for everybody. And, you know, in the early phase of that insight, there's a lot of despair and feeling of hopelessness and feeling it's all too big, it's all too much, I can't handle this. But we can also use it as an incentive to grow bigger ourselves to grow into a wider range of human response and in, into a deeper humanity, which we all can. That's why we are here. And I also think that's why we have this crisis, to force us to grow. And I think it's, it's really gives a sense of relief to, to realize that, that is nothing going wrong in the big picture. It's all happening just perfectly. But it will need from us a lot of resilience and a lot of capacity to adapt and to develop emotional intelligence, to develop empathy, to develop capacity for relationship, to develop compassion. All of those, you know, human capacities we all have, but we can, we can kind of fine-tune them, we can train ourselves. Like we have the instrument already, but we can tune it, we can increase the range and the depth. And the Noble Eightfold Path is the perfect template for that. And there's others out there. There's many, many templates. And it looks like, you know, for us here, we can relate quite well to the Buddha's way of laying it out. And it's one of the real good ones, I think. It's very pragmatic. And it really works and there is lots of beings out there who, who prove that in the way they are. And we have had many teachers go before us who have also really displayed the growth they have received from training themselves in this way. And those four vipalasa is just one way, one little way of expressing what is the illness and what is the health. And I think this is a very good piece of paper to put if you have a little shrine at home, to put on your shrine, because it, in a nutshell it really pulls it all together. And those three levels of depths 
how they manifest in our minds on the level of perception, which is relatively easy to remedy. Sometimes you just need to put on your glasses and then you can see. But then the next one is already more difficult. The mind, the thinking, the daydreaming, the storytelling, the projections. And then the view, which is a real, very tight identification with a certain way of being in the world, which is so familiar to us that we hard, it's hard to become aware of that one. But it can be done. And you know, and until it is done, we can use right view as a protection. And right view, in a nutshell, is the Four Noble Truths is, the right, is what right view is in a nutshell. Knowing, you know, that if there is suffering, if there is stress, if there is friction, then there is attachment. So just remember that. I don't mean pain, you know, we all have pain because we get sick, we get old and we die, but I mean suffering, which is, you know, making, doubling the pain, the second error. So that's, you know, to have right view and to understand that this can be our protection as long as we are still under the sway of wrong view, because it's deep. And there's the a super mundane right view is the Four Noble Truths, and then the worldly right view is, is simply knowing you know, that our actions have results. That's in a nutshell the mundane right view, knowing that actions with intentions have results. Sometimes, you know, we can also call that the law of karma. Just knowing those two is a protection. Even, you know, we are still under the sway of wrong view. We can at least intellectually recall what is right view and then restrain ourselves from acting on wrong view. And through that, you know, we slowly but surely wash that out. It's like slowly but surely we kind of decondition, deconstruct that. So I think this is my little talk on the four vipalasa. And now it's time for walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.